Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Alicia Malone about her book, The Female Gaze, published in 2018 by Mango Publishing Group. Alicia is a host for Turner Classic Movies and has written 52 short reviews of films directed by women. She argues that while most movies demonstrate the male gaze, These films deserve special attention to show how creative females use their talents. Welcome, Alicia Malone. Hi, Alicia. Hi, how you doing? I'm fine. We're here to discuss your book, The Female Gaze. But before we go more in-depth about the book, uh, I always like to get a better sense of the author. Obviously, you're not new to writing. You've got a previous book, so I'd like to hear a little bit about your background. Yeah, well, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from America. I was born in Australia, where I grew up on a steady diet of classic films. And I always loved movies. I always wanted to be part of movies in some way and always read a lot of film books, just as many books as I could possibly digest about film. I didn't go to film school. I just kind of taught myself through watching movies and reading books. And so after school, I decided to go into television where I worked behind the scenes and eventually worked at a movie channel, a cable network in Australia. And that's when I started hosting in front of the camera as well as editing and writing behind the camera. Then I moved to America about eight years ago at the end of 2010 because I wanted to be part of Hollywood where everything was happening in Los Angeles and I started covering a lot of film with press junkets and being guests on shows as film expert and when I started to work on places like uh, different YouTube channels I realized I got my first taste of kind of the sexism of the industry when I would read the comments below the videos and I would notice how the women were talked about on these shows versus the men and how we often had to prove our our intelligence and be beautiful and do all these things at the same time. And after going down a rabbit hole of feeling depressed about all these comments, especially these comments would flare up whenever I spoke about women in film. And I thought it was just an obvious fact that people knew that there was a huge inequality when it came to the genders of directors of movies. But apparently uh, people found that quite offensive that I would talk about women in film. So that just spurred me on to talk about it even more. And that led me to do my first TEDx talk, uh, which led me to my first book, The Female Gaze. And I mean, sorry, my first book, Backwards and in Heels. And that one was really about the history of women in Hollywood. And what I wanted to do with that book was to talk about the early women in the very beginning of American cinema, because there were so many great female pioneers who were innovating the medium right alongside the men who don't get talked about at the same level as their male counterparts. And I knew I had a bit of a following from all the work that I'd done, so I wanted to get this book out to people who might not know anything about this history, plus a lot of the women I hadn't even read about in 
my all my reading of different film books. So after that book, people started to ask me what the best way is to support women in film. And that book, of course, came out right at the time when people started to talk about Me Too and that movement started to grow. So it ended up being kind of a, a hot topic. And I always say if you want to support women in film, you have to watch their movies because every stream, every download, every ticket at the box office always helps to tell Hollywood that you want to see more movies made by women. So that's why I decided to write my second book, Female Gaze, which is a guidebook to 52 films made by women, some of my favorite films. And in the meantime, you know, I've, I've been working on Filmstruck since 2016 and uh, Turner Classic Movies as well, where I'm a host and I get to introduce all the classic films on Sundays and Tuesdays. And that is a real, real joy for me. That is my dream job when I moved over to America, I, I wrote down on my goal list that one day I would be a host on TCM, that I would do a TED Talk and that I would write a book. So now the only thing left on my list is to marry Jake Gyllenhaal and then I'm good. <laughs> I was going to say, you then go back? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it sounds like a fairy tale story if we are allowed <laughs> to use fairy tales when we talk about women. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it was... Something I think, you know, a lot of my friends say I'm really good manifester. I just kind of set my mind to something, write it down and sort of work hard to make it happen. And things started to fall into place. And it's been a, a tough journey. You know, there's times when I had no money and uh, I was just I would do press junkets you know, when you go to talk to these film stars for free because I knew there'd be lunch served <laughs> at these places. So it has been tough, but it's been really rewarding. And I feel so grateful that I get to talk about film all day, every day. I mean, it was the, that saying, if you, if you uh, do work that you love, you don't work a day in your life, that kind of thing. It, it feels very true in my case. Did you feel like you're, um, experience in Australia helped you when you got here? I mean, obviously it, it, it looked good on a resume, but did people look down in some ways because your experience was in Australia? Yeah, I really had to start from scratch. So even though I had established myself in Australia, I'd been on a lot of the, the main TV shows as a film expert. I'd written for film magazines and uh, people kind of knew me as the, this film geek pretty much um when i moved to america no one knew who i was i didn't have any contacts and i didn't have any friends and i had two suitcases and not a lot of money but i was just really determined but the thing that really did help me was that i had all my contacts back in australia so from working in the tv industry since i was 18 i worked with a lot of people who then started to go up the ladder themselves and become executive producers of shows so once i moved over to los angeles i could start emailing them and say, hey, if, if you need a film correspondent in LA, if you want someone to go to these press junkets to cover for you, like I'm here, I'm ready. Um, and because they knew me, that really helped to open some doors. So I started out first working for Australian television from Los Angeles and New Zealand television as well. And then uh, from there, I got to meet people who work for American TV and American YouTube channels and websites. And that's how I started to work for America. So the book is, as we've said, the female gaze, but uh, in the introduction, you're clearly explain where you came with the title. So let's talk a little bit about that part of it, because your main point is that most film, especially over his the history of film, uh, the, it's been the male gaze. So what kind of things do we talk, do we mean when we're talking about the male gaze? Yeah, the male gaze was a term that was coined in the 1970s by a great film theorist, Laura Mulvey. And I remember when I first read about this, and it's a way to talk about art as well as film, but when I first read about this in relation to cinema, it kind of opened my eyes and then I felt like I couldn't unsee the things that I started to notice. So the basic premise of the male gaze is that when you have a man behind the lens and, and a director, that they look at things and they look at the world and they especially look at women in a different way. So there are certain points when the camera will take on the perspective of a man looking at a woman. So the camera lens, for example, 
in um, the postman rings twice will start at the the bottom of uh, Lana Turner's leg and then slowly go up her leg to meet her face. So she's introduced in a very sexualized way from the very beginning. Or you have things like the Transformers movies with Megan Fox being leered at as she goes over the the hood of the car. And what that does is it forces the viewer, no matter what your gender is, to look at women, especially through this gaze of a man. And so if you're a woman watching these films, you take on that perspective. So you start to look at women in a different way. You start to look at them as objects, as uh, beauty. And, and of course, historically in Hollywood films, especially the idea of what the beauty ideal of a woman has been very, very narrow. And so you start to compare yourself to these women and you start to judge women in a specific way. And it can really affect people more than they think. That also leads to the characters in the films too. Um, most of the protagonists being man, men and heroes and the women being there just to support the man or to be the love interest. And so I really believe in that idea of uh, if if you can see it, you can be it. So if you don't see yourself as a hero on screen, if you recognize yourself in these sexualized objects, and that's also how you look at yourself. So the male gaze can really be damaging when you have a whole whole slew of films that have been from one perspective. I think for all of us, regardless of your gender, and if you just love cinema, you should want to see movies made by many different perspectives because it makes the stories more interesting. So the idea for the book and what I wrote in the intro is what does it look like then if you look through a female lens? You know, can there be a female gaze that is comparative to a male gaze? Or is that not true because the world is set up in favor of men and um, the male gaze is, is a part of that? So can women ever have a female gaze? And so it was really interesting for me to kind of set that parameter for myself at the beginning of the book and then try to look at that idea throughout all the films and what I discovered was there's a obviously a very large variety of stories, but there's a lot of similarities between the stories as well, particularly in the fact that most of them star women. <laughs> so I found that most of the time when women direct and especially write films, they do write female characters. And the stories are often smaller. They're more they're very dramatic, but in a very small way. It's not about car chases and action scenes. It can be, but it's not necessarily about that. It can be about the tiny moments in your life that feel so huge. And it was really incredible for me to watch just all these films back to back in preparation to write about them because I started to feel like my own self-esteem grew, you know, just by watching a variety of women going through complex things on screen. It was really comforting and, and it's sad because it makes you think about what we have lost by shutting women out from making films for so long, but it's great that we can celebrate so many wonderful films made by women around the world. So as you've mentioned, it's 52 films and most of them you've written about, but you also decided to uh, ask other people to write uh, about some of the films, either as a second essay for a few of them, but then in most cases they wrote themselves. Now, who picked the film? The uh, person you asked to write about it or did you? The person I asked to write about it. So what I decided to do this time around, I thought, you know, my first book, it was great, but it was all me. Um, there was interviews in there, but I felt like with this book, I wanted to have a wider variety of perspectives from various women and not just be all from my perspective. So I decided to do two things. The first one was to ask some established female film critics who I know and work with and love their work if they would like to contribute for the book. And I was really pleased that they said yes and they were really excited to. And then we went back and forth about their choices because I wanted to try and make sure that you could find a lot of these films easily. Unfortunately, with the shutting down of Filmstruck, it makes things a lot harder because many of these films were just available on Filmstruck, but hopefully you can still find them. And I, I tossed up the idea of whether I wanted them to not write about a film if I had written about it. Then I decided, no, I'd love to hear their perspective on the film as well. So there are a couple of double ups, but it ends up being 52 films in total. And then I thought, you know, what would be really great is I have a tiny little platform, you know, I've got this book. I can help 
some aspiring female film critics. So if there are women out there who are writing about film but they want to get their start but they don't know how, you know, a byline often helps. So having an essay published in a book, maybe that could help if they could put that in their portfolio. So I decided to open it up and I put out like a, a Google form and I said, you know, I'm opening this up if any aspiring female film critics would like to uh, be considered for this book. Uh, you're going to have to write on spec, unfortunately, because that's the only way I can see what your writing is like, but write about a film, your favorite film made by a woman. And I thought I would get, you know, 20 maybe submissions, but I got something like 362. <laughs> so then from there I had to really go through and cut it down because I wanted to pay the contributors and it came out of my own pocket and I wanted to make sure that they got money and I couldn't afford to, to pay for that many. And I also wanted to make it 52 films just for the idea of you could watch one a week if you want and do the women in film challenge that way. So going through all the films, I had to cut them down and that was really difficult. And there were so many wonderful pieces by many aspiring female film critics, but ended up just being able to choose a couple. And so they're in there as well. So I feel proud to have a lot of other contributors in there and not just all me. Well, the great thing is, is I guess that's two says two things. Number one, that your reach is probably a little bigger than you thought. Yeah. And number two, that there are people out there who desperately want to be able to write about film and they need the opportunity. So anything you can do is, is, is useful. And who knows, you can, you know, the second 52 can always come up at some point and maybe yeah. you'll be able to use that or, or come up with some other ways to use some of that material. So that's great. Yes. So the 52 films, obviously, um, these are films that over time you've seen. Uh, you, you, uh, you've got them. They're arranged in uh, order by date, going from 1906 to the present. But of the 52, what would you say? How did you decide the or? I mean, the order is obvious, but uh, when mm. did you uh, start to see some of these films? Because you were in Australia, you said, so you tended to be able to see classic films. I'm not sure what the ability was to see some of the more recent ones or, you know, the ones like from the 90s and early 2000s and such as before you were in the United States. Uh, uh, were those reasonably easy to see? Some of them were. I mean, uh, so when I was just out of school, I worked in a, a video store. And also when I was going through high school, I would go down to the local video store and try and get the seven films for seven days for $7 deal and just go through films. So I had written down a bunch of uh, movies directed by women that I wanted to see. And some were able, I could find, but some were very, very difficult. Um, there were some like, say, Whale Rider, um, which was made by Nikki Caro, New Zealand director. That was easy. Of course, things like The Piano and... Um, uh, My Brilliant Career, made by you know, Australian female film directors. They were accessible. Point Break, of course, was very widely seen by people. But a lot of them, a lot of the foreign films were harder to see. So there were many that I hadn't seen until I moved over here and I started to do more research into women in film and started to uncover these kind of histories and thought of things like, well, Seven Beauties by Lena Bertmuller. She was the first woman to ever be nominated for a Best Director Academy Award. And I hadn't seen that until probably about five years ago. And I thought, okay, I've got to find this film and seek it out. And again, unfortunately, a lot of these were made more accessible because of a film struck service. So um, I was able to see some of them only within the last couple of years because they've been on film struck. But there are many, many films that I wanted to include, but I couldn't uh, because of the fact that they're just impossible to find. Um, you know, so it was it was a difficult thing to cut down the list. Um, and some of them I had only discovered quite recently, but I watched them all again. What, as I was writing, just to refresh my memory, which was really fun, actually. <laughs> so the films that were written that, that were covered by other people, you've still you you made sure to watch them, even as far yeah. as your process, because since even though someone else was writing about them, they were going to be in the book. Yeah, I wanted to to check. 
that, um, well, I, I trusted them and their opinion on the film, but I wanted to make sure that I could find them and that they would fit with the overall aesthetic of the book. So if people were trying to watch one a week, that it would kind of make sense chronologically. And I like the fact that I put it chronologically because I like the fact that even just looking at the contents page, you can see the big gaps where there are no films for many years. And that tells the story as well. It tells the story that there weren't female directors getting opportunities to make films. And you see a big influx from the 90s onwards, and that was because of independent cinema. It's also not until the 90s that you get the first female filmmaker of colour in my book, and that was because they didn't get the same opportunities. Yeah, looking at the list, you really, as you point out, there's probably about, without counting them, maybe 15 of the 52 before 1991 and then from 1991 on that's when you start to see them you know you're getting more than one per year sometimes three and you can obviously tell the difference at that point of these earlier films and as i say the concept that there's one from 1906 when i read that essay i says i've never heard of this film or this person which is depressing in many ways but uh which is called the consequences of feminism obviously 1906 so it's not what we would consider to be anything approaching a feature film like we would know today. But mm-hmm. uh, what, when you saw that film, when did you see that film the first time, I guess is my first question. And, and then why did you feel it deserved to start off the book? Well, I didn't, I'm the same as you. It, it surprised me when I first heard the story of Alice Guy-Boucher, the director, because this is a woman that should have been talked about in all the film history books I read. She was not only the first female filmmaker in existence, but she was one of the first filmmakers overall in, in cinema history. She was a secretary who worked for a photography company. She borrowed her her um, boss's camera and she ended up making what many historians consider to be the first narrative film in existence. And so it's amazing that you have this woman who then went on to make or supervise, produce, direct almost a thousand films. And many of them have been lost just because of the fact that we don't, we didn't keep silent films, didn't preserve them in the same way. But her history was really lost for a long time. She wasn't spoken about a lot of the times in film books her films were uh, said to be directed by someone else and she fought for a long time to reclaim her history so I found out about Alice Guy-Boucher a couple of years ago and she was one of the main reasons I wanted to write my first book and she started off my first book Backwards and in Heels and I'd say out of everyone she's the one person that people read her story and say, wow, I didn't know anything about her and I really should have. So when I was writing Backwards and Heels and doing more research on her, I discovered that there are quite a few of her films available on YouTube. (laughs) And the one that I found really interesting was The Consequences of Feminism from 1906. So when I sat down to write this book, I thought that's a perfect way to start it because firstly, it's a film from early 1900s, so people might not have realised that there were female directors back then. Secondly, the title alone, you think, wow, that's a film that might not be made today, let alone back in 1900s. What's that about? And then when you watch the film, it's really interesting because it is a gender role reversal short film comedy where it supposes you know what would happen if we lived in a world where women had power and men were the ones who were sewing and and being hit on and all this stuff and I think you know you could look at it in various ways but I think she's trying to make some points about uh what people were thinking about feminism at the time, which is probably still true that people were were scared of it. They thought, well, what if women have the power? Are they just going to be like men, um, you know, and and trying to restore the balance? And and so it's really fascinating film. So I thought that was a good one to start with. And because it's available on YouTube, it's easy to watch. Plus it's only, you know, 13 minutes long, I think, or 11 minutes long. It's it's a short film, um, but fascinating, really fascinating. Yeah, we, yeah. I, I do right. know that some of these early ones on YouTube, it's unbelievable. Some of this, you know, if you search, you find it. Um, and as you pointed out, you were trying your best to make sure that at least at the time you developed a list that you could still see the films. Yeah. Um, so the, obviously then we've got a couple of very early ones, one or two from the forties, one or two from the sixties. And then, like I said before, once we get into, uh, 1991, that's when, um, 
we start to see more. But one of the things that I found interesting about the consequences of feminism in, in reading your uh, description of it at the end, you mentioned that um, the director actually, and it, this is interesting for me because the person I interviewed whose podcast was just published last week, the week before yours is likely to be published, was Anthony Slide. Wow. I, I, I interviewed him about his book, this recent book called The Magnificent Obsession, and it's just interesting to see his name pop back up in in, in this in particular case, because uh, as you point out, he wrote about Guy, uh, um, he wrote a book, Early Women Directors, and then he's also was involved with publishing her memoirs. So uh, Yeah, I, I and he, I have to say, he is a personal hero of mine and, and many people who uh, you know, work to to tell these stories because he was so instrumental in changing our view of Hollywood, and that wasn't till the the sixties and seventies when he started to really dig into the early female directors and speak about early Hollywood, and and he's really responsible for for that and and for people finally reclaiming these women. So, yeah, I think he's wonderful. So we do have about five films that are in the seventies. Which is interesting given that, you know, then there's a bit of a, you know, we got a few from the 80s. But the 70s seem to have gotten some reasonable uh, representation. Uh, what did you, was there anything specific that suddenly meant that we were able to to see uh, female directors in the 70s? The 70s were also about independent cinema. That was when, um, you know, especially here in America, it was when New Hollywood started to to come into the forefront and uh, the production code was thrown out and so it started to be all about experimenting with film. But the, the films that I've chosen are mainly from the mainly from Europe during that time and, and there were several female directors working in European countries, particularly in France, you know, with like Agnes Varda, who was the only female filmmaker during the French New Wave. Um, so there were all these kind of mini cinematic movements happening around the world at that time. So I think that allowed women to start to make some films and start making waves in the movies. And one of my favorites from the 1970s is Jean Dumont, 23 Commerce Key, 1080 Brussels, which is a really long title and it's a really long film. It's by Chantal Ackerman. It's a three-hour study of a woman's life, three days in a woman's life. And it's mesmerizing. It's, it's hard I think for audiences today to watch because you do have to sit with it, be patient and watch uh, long takes. The camera is held on a scene for a long time. It doesn't cut away. It can make you feel uncomfortable. But what it does is when, when you get into it, you get absorbed in the details and you watch this woman go through her daily routine and she has a very meticulous daily routine where she does everything in the correct order and she puts everything back in the place where it should be. She's very neat. And then she starts to unravel. And so when she's starting to unravel and one time she drops a spoon, it kind of it makes you panic because you think everything's falling apart. So that's a really interesting film and a great example of a woman who was working outside of the studio system, who was uh, experimenting with this new way of making cinema. It became much easier, more accessible, cheaper. You know, she did it on a very small budget and it ended up being what we now say as a feminist masterpiece. It's a, a cult classic and one that still holds up today and surprises audiences today. And there's no question that most of the early ones, at least until we get closer to the 90s, are tend to be uh, international films. Clearly, there wasn't much going on in, or not as much going on in the United States during this yeah. period. So uh, most of what you see that's, you know, that you choose to bring up are more current or, or are foreign films until we get later on in time. Yeah, that's right. I mean. Uh, there was that slight little blip in the 70s where a couple of female filmmakers started to emerge, especially in the art scene um, in, in America, and then again they went away. And that was the frustrating thing about writing my first book was stepping back and looking at the history of cinema and seeing all the peaks and troughs. And it seemed to be when you think, oh, women are starting to get back in, and then it went back to the status quo, went back and forth, back and forth. Um, and then the 90s was really when it started to happen. But you know, we're still talking about it today. You're still talking about the inequality behind the camera. So something we're still working on. But I am hopeful that with the level of conversation now that 
things won't go back. <laughs> well, it also helps that we've got so many different uh, venues now, thankfully, uh, for material, um, for um, films, that that should help, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be, you know, no, no director should be, you know, said, well, they'll only do Netflix or they'll only do this. Well, they should be able to have the option of doing anything they want as long as, and that's what's so great now is that uh, we're seeing more and more and, and it's become a, a point where they're, you know, female directors are getting the ability. And part of that's because there's female producers now and, mm -hmm. and that, that all those kind of things are helping to, to give the opportunities uh, that, um, were absolutely important to give, um, females in Hollywood and other places, the, uh, ability to use their talents. Yeah, I know. And it's, um, it's great that now there is that real conversation about it. People are realizing the problem. People are speaking about it. And I think putting pressure on the studios, as you say, having female producers, which really started to happen in the eighties when women started to come into more executive positions, that all helps to open the door. And there's, it's, you know, statistics as well that every time you have a female director, that means you have more female crew members, uh, more female uh, cast members, and it's just a more equal playing field. And, and that's what we want. It's not like we want all women and no men, you know, it's just want equal, uh, the quality on set, because that just makes for a much more interesting and, and creative process, I think. Well, the other thing is, is that, uh, it doesn't have to be all one or the other. It's yeah. it's more important that the people who are on the create, you know, the director and, and screenwriters, you're getting a different point of view and that's good because you see yeah. things differently. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time, not even sports films is a uh, league of their own. And yeah. usually when people say, what's your favorite sports movie? Or when those kind of questions come up, it bothers me that that film doesn't get mentioned, but it's mostly men who are drawing the lists up. Um, yes. But, and, and yet the reason why that film works so well is that even though it has male characters and they're presented perfectly well, you know, they're not required to be superhuman. And yeah. sometimes in films, the men are all, are, you know, it, this this was a female baseball team. And even though it had men coaches and managers and stuff and the owners were all men, in the end, the most important part were the, were the women. And that yeah. clearly comes through. And I think it's it's the, only, the reason it works so well is because we're getting a female point of view. Exactly. And you bring up a good point. You know, I focus a lot of my energy on talking about women in film, but it can be just as damaging for young men to see all these archetypes, these hyper-masculine characters on screen, these superheroes or whatever it is, and think that they have to live up to that image. And so it just happens when you get a more balanced crew and you get more balanced writers and you get different perspectives. It just makes for both genders to be represented in a good way and a league of their own is a great example of what i was talking about before because when i talked to um when i spoke about it in my previous book you know we spoke about how after you know gina davis said after league of their own everyone in hollywood was saying well this changes everything the success of this film will mean there's going to be many more you know, women, sports movies, and, of course, that didn't happen. And then same with Thelma and Louise. It was like this changes everything. Now there's going to be a lot more buddy uh, women road films, and, of course, there wasn't. So, uh, again, hopefully now that, that will just continue to grow and we won't go back to that amnesia where we forget <laughs> that things like this can be successful. Yeah, I recently interviewed, recently, now it was probably last year, there's an, a newer book about Thelma and Louise, and reading it it's this and, and obviously you uh it's just unbelievable reading the story of Thelma and Louise and and you can tell just from watching it reading the book was so great because Callie Corey who of course was the writer um of elite of Thelma and Louise she wanted to direct it and mm. of course she wasn't allowed to um Ridley Scott ended up doing it himself but you, you just watching it and reading the book you you hear about you you know the stories of certain things that were done because obviously Ridley Scott was making it not to denigrate him as a filmmaker, but, you know, he did things like explosions and things that I suspect had a female directed it might have come through differently. 
Yes, I agree. And and I've got that book as well that you're talking about. And it did make me think, I really want to see Callie's version of this. Um, and again, you know, that's what I discovered writing my book is just, it makes you think about what we've lost by showing women out. But it also, I was tired of um, typing the same thing, which was, you know, despite the critical uh, and commercial success of this movie, insert female filmmaker here struggled for years before she could make another film it just seemed to be always the case that they could have one film that did really well and then it was a struggle to make the next film and there was a study done recently which said that 80 percent of female directors make one film every 10 years and that's not it's not through lack of trying that's just the way it seems to happen because again it's seen as a financial risk or some kind of risk to give movies to women one of the things I've noticed in, in, in just reading through the lists where the good thing, actually, especially more current periods, is that there are a number of films you didn't include because luckily in the more recent times you were able to find other films. But luck, but you also were – it seemed like you were trying to make sure that the more well-known um, female directors of more current period are still represented – so we mm. do get Catherine Bigelow, but instead of any of her more current ones, including things like uh, Zero Dark Thirty, you instead picked Point Blank, which uh, yeah. is still an incredibly popular movie. Keanu Reeves still gets great uh, reviews for that movie. So it was great that uh, – and it, it's a film that at first glance you would think has you know female director. It's not an obvious thing, yeah. which is actually a good thing. I mean, maybe it's, it's, it's great to be able to show you don't have to be quote-unquote male or female to direct a certain type of film. Exactly. That's exactly what I thought. I mean, firstly, I wanted to show that uh, women can direct action films as well as men, and I think many people who love Point Break might not even realize that a woman directed it. But also it's an interesting film if you really start digging into it. And, you know, maybe I dig into it a little too much because it is quite a silly film, but it, it really shows some interesting things about masculinity and about this kind of bromance that's celebrated on screen. And it, there's a couple of lines that, you know, sounds like it could turn into a romance rather than just a bromance. And so I think it's fascinating, plus things like Catherine Bigelow fought for Keanu Reeves to be uh, cast in that role because she wanted a sensitive, vulnerable type of actor. And she had to really fight that battle because the studio wanted to go for a much more hyper-masculine guy. And also this film came out right at the time when those really hyper-masculine stories were being told with your Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone and Bruce Willis, these very, very muscular men who are often armies of one with guns and fighting their way through things. So I like that she wanted to do something very different with the male characters. So I think that's an interesting film to look at her um, from her perspective. Um, and I'm glad I went that way. I almost, I was like, do I go Zero Dark Thirty or do I go Point Break? But I ended up watching both and thought, you know, it's actually going to be more fun to talk about Point Break because it's so interesting. It's an outlier. Right. As I say, most of her films are uh... – I don't want to say difficult to watch, although I think in some ways they are, mm -hmm. Hurt Locker in particular. But it was nice to include her, but in a, in a film that uh, is a little different. But I think one of the great things, and and you uh, quoted Martha Coolidge in in a in a small section there, uh, you know, in in a sidebar in the in the book, and there's somebody else right there. So it was great that uh, uh, not only are we hearing from you know, we hear how these directors and then later producers are important to everything to other women who have either come before them or are coming mm -hmm. to the present. Exactly. I mean, there's so many women who've opened the door for other women, and uh, that often happens in even in a big business like Hollywood, where you'll have, if you have a woman in a room, then she's more likely to advocate for a female director to come on board. And, you know, the, the hard thing, again, was just cutting down the list and I wanted to talk about a whole variety of films. When I first started thinking about this book, I thought, okay, I'll have some movies directed by women, some movies produced by women, some movies written by women, some movies, you know, shot by women, some movies with costumes by women. And then I thought, wow, this is going to get too big and, and I only had a certain time frame to write it in. So that's why I, I limited it to directed by women. And many of the films were also written by 
the directors as well. But um, you could do a whole other series of books looking at the films that women produced and how that influenced other films or the films that, you know, women did costumes on or women edited. You know, it's a lot of great female editors who have edited the big action films like Jaws, you know, and um, and all of uh, Spielberg's films and Scorsese's films. So there's so many more avenues you could explore with women and maybe that's future books down the line. <laughs> well, the good thing is in this next one I wanted to mention – talk about the watermelon woman uh, because mm-hmm. I think it's an unusual given the it's 1996 so it's right in this period of time where we're starting to see more but I I found it such an interesting description although I haven't seen the film yet so I've got to find it uh, but um, it's a documentary and yeah. women in document you know women director documentary directors are starting to really become more and more well known which is great some of the more famous documentarians uh are giving opportunities or or have worked with women and have now given them the opportunities to to make documentaries themselves but uh the watermelon watermelon woman is a very interesting <laughs> film yeah. to say the least Could, let, yes. let's talk a little bit about that one this is like a a docu fiction, I think you would call it. So it's a it's a pseudo documentary, almost like a mockumentary. So it's it's created uh, to look like a documentary within a film, um, and the techniques she used are very much documentary like. So it's by Cheryl Danier, and she with this film became the first female um, African American lesbian director. To have have a movie, um, and so she is. She plays herself or a version of herself working at a video store, and she comes across this fictional character in a fictional um, classic film. But for the premises of the film, it's it's a real film uh, where she sees this woman who's only credited as a watermelon woman, this African American actress in a classic movie. She becomes obsessed with the idea of who this actress is. And through that, you know, she talks about how so much history has been lost, especially when it comes to women of color, that, you know, their records and with actors and and directors as well have, have barely been kept. Um, there's a film we're going to be playing on TCM soon, which we think is the first film ever directed by an African-American woman, but we don't really know because the records haven't been kept. So it's an interesting look at the loss of history. She also um, talks, she also has a lesbian relationship in it. So that was quite, you know, great for the time. It was around the time of um, what they call new queer cinema. So with independent cinema, these uh, queer directors wanted to represent themselves on screen. And the thing I like also about the film is that she's playing with structure and form. It's so hard to quantify. It's hard to put into a box or a different genre. It's funny, but it's also quite, uh, it has a lot of messages, some tough messages, social messages, you know, and it's um, a documentary, but also it's a lot that's not real in it. So it's so fascinating. And she wanted specifically to not only change the type of stories that are told on screen, but the way we tell stories. And I think that's what happens when you get more people who have wider variety of perspectives. You start getting those experimental forms. And so that was one thing that was hard for the book too. I wanted to include a lot of documentaries because, as you said, there's been so many great female documentarians. And I think out of all the genres, the documentary genre is the one that has had the most female directors. There's something about the way that women can, uh, you know, speak to interview subjects and dive emotionally into something that seems to work well with documentaries. Plus, it's also seen as less of a financial risk for places to finance documentaries rather than narrative feature films. Uh, but just, again, in terms of time frame, I had to cut it down and kind of uh, make it more focused on narrative films. But The Watermelon Woman, I thought, was one I could sneak in there that would be both narrative and have a documentary style. That's one of the things that the book, it, it even as we get into the more current periods where there's many more films to choose from, that's one of the things that's nice is that you you still try to make sure you find movies that possibly would be less known to people so that uh, that gives the opportunity for people to go out and find them. I mean, obviously, there are many more now, but uh, it's great to have these choices. And we also you also made sure to even broaden your your view a little bit more with with the film Bend It Like Beckham, mm. where not only is it a female director, but it's uh, it's 
you've got the international uh, feel to it uh, as far as Indian uh, culture. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, I tried to to look as look for a different um, different perspectives on on a wide range of subjects and and not discriminate uh, our more popular film from talking about more of the art house indie films and Bennett Like Beckham was a huge hit. It was, it's a great satisfying film. It's really fun to watch, but it also takes a look at a culture that doesn't get shown on screen very often. And that is the, the Indian family culture within the English, uh, English world. So I like Benham like Beckham because the main character, Jess, she wants to be a football star like her idol, Beckham, David Beckham, but she also has to she has to have a lot of uh, responsibility with her family and her family expects certain things because of their culture. They want her to get married. They don't want her to play soccer. They don't want her to wear those tiny shorts. They want her to cover up and, and be very, um, you know, very, uh, what's the word, modest. Um, and so it's it's a fascinating look at something that we don't talk about very much and, and the immigrant experience and, and second uh, the second generation experience where you were born in a country and so you feel like you belong to that country but your family still practices the culture of their country. That kind of battle is, is fascinating to me. And uh, it's also sad that Gurinder, you know, she she's made a couple of films since then but she has been one also to struggle to get financing despite the huge, huge uh, success of that movie. <laughs> so... As we get farther into the book, then um, obviously you go pretty far. And I mean, like we've been talking about, it's so interesting where you look at the contents. um, More than one and a half of the pages of the it's it's like two and a half pages of tables of contents. But I would say probably almost two pages worth are films that were made from 1991 to the present. So obviously it's consistently pointing what we're trying to say. But just to make it clear, each each one that you talk about, uh, you basically give all kinds of uh, background, director, producer, those kind of things. Uh, You give some of the plot. Uh, you give some background, and then you also have this section in each one that you call the female gaze. What? What? Did, obvious. It should be pretty obvious. But what did you mean when you put those sections in? Yeah, because I set myself those parameters in the intro that I wanted to explore what the world would look like if you're looking through a female lens. I decided to set that challenge for myself. That at the end of each each little chapter. I would try to sum up what I see as the female gaze in this film. And some of it is very obvious. Some of it I try to go into more details and nuance. It's like, what does, what makes this film particularly feminine? What is the female perspective? What's something that um, we can discuss more? Because I found with my first book, Backwards and Achilles, I was surprised to know that it actually ended up being in the syllabus of many film courses. And so I would get a lot of university teachers telling me that they had you know, put the book in their syllabus so that they could start teaching from it. So I thought with this second book that maybe if that happens again, I could give some kind of discussion points that then people can agree or disagree with or just discuss further or make them think about the films in, in a different way. And I tried to put in some little fun facts in there too, just so it gives more um, more background on the filmmaker or the film itself. And because I, I wanted to both talk about the film and the filmmaker at the same time, and what makes it particularly feminine. So the, then, just to give a time frame, the, the most current film in the in the list is actually very current, A Wrinkle in Time. <laughs> although you didn't write that one, it was Carl Renato wrote that particular essay. But uh, you were able to get it pretty up to date, which is which is good. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I liked uh So I, I was really wanting to include The Rider by Chloe Zhao, and that's the last one that I write about from 2018. And I was, as I was writing, I was uh, waiting for it to come up on Amazon because I knew it was getting released. It had been in theaters, but it was still yet to come on digital, and I wanted to watch it again. So I had to wait until it finally popped up, and then it was great. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to include this film because that, again, is a very interesting film. It's a, it's a woman looking at a very masculine world of cowboys and also a section of a community that you never see on screen, these Native American Indian 
cowboys. So they have the their culture, but they also have the very masculine American ideal of a cowboy and uh, rodeo um, riding, and then it's based on a true story as well. So it's a really interesting one that I was wanting to include. Um, they had to pretty much pry the the draft out of my hands because I was like, oh, but I could have, I could do more. I, there's more films coming. <laughs> so, were there films that you would have liked to include, but it's you, you weren't able to partly because maybe you weren't even able to see them, or again, maybe something that you had seen a long time ago that maybe isn't available for viewing, and therefore you felt you couldn't include it. Yeah, there's a film called Wanda, which is by Barbara Loden, and that film was made in the 70s, and she really struggled to get the financing together herself. She made this very independent film. It's based pretty much on her own life and her own experiences. It's about a woman who's lost, and she goes from from man to man, and she's trying to find her way. It's a very sad film, but it's a film that is so hard to see. So they had a couple of screenings in theaters in New York and L.A. this year as a, a print that just finally got restored. But that's a film that remains impossible to find anywhere else. So I didn't I wanted to include that film because of the story behind making it is so great and what it says. And she's a, an American woman in the 70s making this very independent film. She was uh, married to Elliot Zan, who is this very well-established Hollywood director. So it's so fascinating, but I thought, hey, I don't want to include things that are impossible to find. I'm hopeful that with the restoration of the print that in the future they're going to make a a new Blu-ray or a new digital copy and it'll come out somewhere. Maybe Criterion will do one, but um, it's right now is just too hard to see and I knew I would get very angry letters from people saying, I want to see this film, it sounds great, but I cannot find it anywhere. And that's the case also with a lot of films. So another one um, was uh, called The Girl on the IRT. And that film was an independent film from the 90s made by a woman of colour. And you cannot find the print anywhere because the only print in existence belongs to the filmmaker. You know, she's the one that owns that print. So there, uh, it does also make you think about what we decide to preserve, what what makes it from film print to VHS and then what makes it to VHS to DVD and then what makes it from DVD to streaming and what makes it now available with other services being shut down. So uh, it, it is we are slowly narrowing the, the films we can talk about and therefore teach by not making them available and unfortunately it seems to happen quite often with women. And yet there are certain films that we've had how many versions of them now? So. Oh, no. oh <laughs> Don't even God. want to count that. So <laughs> Let's let's talk present. Uh, obviously, you're in the industry. You're a critic. You see a lot. You see a lot of movies. You, you obviously are tied into um, current events and things like that. Do we are we actually seeing true progress finally, or are we back in that same spot that we were during Thelma and Louise and in the '90s and so on and so forth, where we hoped and it didn't happen? Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment it still is just a lot of conversation. So people are trying to figure out how to deal with this, what happens next. The the Me Too movement really uprooted Hollywood and a lot of powerful men fell and, and a lot of old beliefs were, were toppled and people had to look at themselves. So I think at the moment still trying to figure out what are the next steps. But I am very, very hopeful, I think more than I ever have been, I'm very optimistic that it can't go back to the same way and it will go forward. And whatever that looks like, I'm not quite sure. It could be, you know, what um, Frances McDormand spoke about in her Oscar speech with Diversity Rider, the fact that you have in your contract that the film has to be made up of a certain, you know, gender and racial balance, uh, the crew, et cetera, et cetera. You know, do we have to impose those quotas to make sure it happens? Um, can we hope that people 
just start opening up the doors to female filmmakers. I am very, very optimistic about it. And you have people like Ava DuVernay who made A Wrinkle in Time, but she's also a great example of a female director who's been incredibly successful herself but is also working to make sure other women are getting in the door. So with her TV show Queen Sugar, she hired all female filmmakers. And when I spoke to her for my previous book, she said it was very easy to find very talented ready, willing, able filmmakers because they're there, they're waiting, they need work and they've got the experience. I think it's a huge misnomer and something that people are still talking about where they say there are just no female directors, that we don't have enough female directors. And that's actually not true. We have many, many female directors. We just don't have many directors who are given opportunities. So there are so many out there. I am optimistic. I mean, it could go back to the way it was. Nothing concrete has happened yet. The statistics are still the same. But I I remain optimistic that things can change. I'm hopeful for the future. I also believe the more female producers and executive producers, and there are a number of well-known actresses or female actors, let's do that right, um, who are now producing. And they're not even producing films for themselves. They're producing films that happen to have um, made or that happen to just be a project they want to have made. Yes. And, And I think that's where, as we know, the people who are in charge have to be the ones in the end to hire the directors, unless unless it's a project that you do for yourself, which can be done, but it's not you know, it's expensive and unlikely to be as successful. So I think that's where female current directors and then female producers um, are Mm. where I think you could possibly see more and more difference. It's to the point where a movie is made and you don't talk about that aspect of it. It's just an, it's a given that you don't even think about, well, who cares? I mean, yes, it's worth discussing, but it's not important in and of it. It shouldn't be an important thing in and of itself if it's just normal. Yeah, I love uh, so Gillian Armstrong, who is a female director who made my brilliant career. And when she made that film in the 70s, she was the first Australian female filmmaker to have made a film in almost 50 years in, in my country. But she spoke and she said something really great recently where she said, um, like, true equality will be when women are allowed to make mediocre films. There's just as many mediocre female directors as there are mediocre male directors. And that's the thing. Just You want it to just be a given. You don't want it to be so much pressure on a film directed by a woman that it has to do a certain box office in order to get another opportunity. And you also don't want to only have women tell women's stories and only have men tell male stories. You want everybody to be able to tell a variety of stories from a variety of perspectives and not have to talk about it afterwards. That's the point when we know we've reached true equality, I think. Right. And like we say, we're, we're, we're seeing those women out there who are able to do that. And some of them, I think if somebody just read through the list here without knowing, and in many cases, probably people don't know that they're female, they were directed by females. Mm-hmm. There may be ones where they're going to be surprised. I didn't know that one was made, was directed by a female, for example. I mean, you know, American Psycho, did you know that was <laughs> directed yeah. by a female? I mean, those kind of things. So Exactly. So, well, I really enjoyed our conversation. Are you going, are, what's your plan? I mean, obviously you've now written two books. Uh, are you going to think about a third or a continuation of this kind of thing or, or, yeah. or just sort of uh, deal with what you're dealing with now and then decide for the future what to go to next? Well, I'm sure you, being that you talk to so many writers, they probably say the same thing, but it's like after you finish a book, you think never again. That was so hard. Why did I put myself through that? And then a couple of months later, you're like, oh, but I have another idea. So right now I'm in that phase of, okay, I wrote two books in two years and uh, that took a lot out of me. I need to take a break from writing but I wouldn't be surprised if next year I'm like, oh, I've got another idea for a new book. So nothing is percolating yet. I just feel very grateful that I was able to write two books and it always makes me so happy when I see people on Twitter or Instagram or wherever it is have their little copy of, of my book and, and that makes me happy. So the next little while I'll spend trying to promote the book, do some book signings, and then um, after that I'll just be working with TCM and then we'll see what happens next. I'm not quite sure what's next. Well, hopefully uh, 
the people in you know the universities and, and and colleges and schools will take this book the same way they did with your last one and use it as a as a guide uh even if they can't watch all 52 in a class uh at least you can do some good uh individual ones and hopefully that will be useful too because as somebody who teaches college i it, even though it's not in film, it's history. Uh, trying to find good material sometimes that reaches people can be difficult. Mm. So this is the kind of thing where I can imagine it would have a lot of value for for a, a place like that. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope people take this book. And it, it's unlike the other book, they're not going to be reading this from cover to cover. Right. But hopefully student, students will find it useful and everyday people and you can have it on your coffee table and you can either decide to watch a film a week or you can just dip in and out, whatever it takes your fancy if you're looking for something to watch. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, the book is, when we're recording this, we're about 10 days away from the book being published officially, so uh, good luck. Uh, sometimes I interview people who have the books already out, sometimes even a couple years afterwards. So it's great to be able to talk to somebody at the beginning of the publicity or early on. And, and hopefully uh, our listeners will reach out for it, but just as importantly, reach out for the films. So uh, thanks for your time. Thank you, Joel. I appreciate you giving my me the space to talk about the book um, and your support. That's wonderful. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. The book Alicia and I were both trying to remember is Off the Cliff, How the Making of Thelma and Louise Drove Hollywood to the Edge by Becky Aikman. I interviewed her previously for this podcast. I hope you find time to explore the 52 films from Alicia's book. This is Joel Cherney, and I'll be back soon with more New Books and Film on the New Books Network.